an important time in preparing to possess and to inherit their land. They saw what happens when God's tomorrow comes and, and the day of realization is there. They learned how to remember the Lord. God taught them, but no sooner had they done that than they learned how to forget the Lord and defeat came on the heels of victory and faith had to be reaffirmed and they had to acknowledge sin because they had broken the agreement between themselves and God and they had to be restored to favor with him. And now the preliminaries are all over. Jericho is behind them, the victory there, the defeat and the humiliation of Ai and Bethel are behind them and another victory is behind them and they turn their eyes from the banks of Jordan toward the heart land of promise that God has given them. And in the beginning steps of this part of their journey, we see the fear of the Lord as it is evidenced in this situation by the reactions of the different people involved. Now, in chapter 9, the story is essentially this. The kings of Canaan, all of them have gathered themselves together to fight Israel. There is one king who leads his people on a realistic course and that course is to try to make peace with Israel, even though, though they realize that Israel is pledged not to make peace and accept peace. These are the people of Gibeon. They make a peace under false conditions with the people of Israel, and then they answer for their unfaithfulness, as we would see on through chapter 10. They answer for their unfaithfulness from their cohorts and their fellow countrymen. The fear of the Lord... In verses 1 and 2, there's a lesson to be learned here. I call these two verses, and we'll comment on them just briefly, the matter of fighting God. Fighting God. Now, about this time, it came to pass, when all the kings were on this side of Jordan, when all the kings who were on this side of Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys, in all the coasts of the great sea near Lebanon, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, heard what God had done, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. Now this in itself is a minor miracle. For these people dwelling in the land of Canaan were the descendants of Ishmael. Ishmael, the half-brother of Isaac. Ishmael, the child of a broken covenant. The child of unbelief who did not inherit what Abraham had been promised from God. And from that day until this, the Ishmaelites and all of their descendants and the Israelites remained the bitterest of enemies. This was probably the first time, indeed it may have been the only time, that all of the descendants of Ishmael agreed on anything. But I want you to know that if the world ever agrees on anything among itself, it will be to oppose what God is up to. And friends, buckle your seatbelts when you begin to perceive that the forces of this world system we live in have joined together... For at the time when they do, their purpose will always be to fight God. It is a footnote that shall be noticed through the remainder of Joshua 
that though this may have been some cause for concern to the Israelites, I'm sure it was. Though it may have caused some of the generals and the captains of Joshua some fear and some uh, worry, the combined power of the forces of this world system have never and will never be able to successfully undo what God does. Never will happen. But here they are fighting God, trying to fight Him, however you'd want to say it. That saves words. And then notice in verses 3 to 15, here is what happens when people think they can fool God. They are fooling God. Verse 3 says, When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done on Jericho and Ai, they did work wilily or deceptively and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their donkeys and wine bottles old and tore them and, and bound them up and old shoes and uh, clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them and all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy and they went to Joshua at Gilgal and said to him, We have come for, from a far country and we want to make an alliance with you. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure you dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? From a very far country we have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard fame of him and all that he did in Egypt. And they go on to lay one of the thickest coats of sugared, flowery, flattery that anybody ever laid on anyone. And Israel made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and all the princes of the congregation swear unto them. Now there are a couple of things that happen when people start out to fool God. And you know, I don't suppose that I've ever known anybody that didn't try it. We try it in our own ways, in our own circumstances, in rather innocuous ways or in very serious matters. We try, though we would not always perceive it to be so, we try to fool the Lord. Well, how was Gibeon going to survive? They knew that Israel was under orders from God to eradicate the inhabitants of the land of promise. They were bound to do that. They had demonstrated their willingness to do it at Jericho and at Bethel and at Ai. And so they decided to practice deception. Now there are some other things very strange that happen. You know, they didn't fool God, of course, and that goes without saying. But we need to remember that though God may not be fooled, we may be. God may not be fooled sometimes, but we are. I want you to notice two things here, and you'll find them also in the, in the sixth chapter of the book of Daniel. When the world tries to get at the church, 
or when bad folks try to get at good folks, or when little people try to get at big people, any way you want to say it, you will find very likely present two elements. The element of flattery and the element of falsehood. Where was flattery? Oh, we come from the far side of civilization. We have walked many days to get here. But word has traveled across the world of what you're doing. And your fame has spread and the fame of your God. They flattered them. But in order to make the flattery accomplish its purpose, they had to lie. Where are you from? You see, they had the right idea at first. They were, they were fearful. They were careful. They were watchful. And they said, maybe you come from around here and you're trying to fool us. And they said, oh, no. We come from a far place. See our old shoes and our worn out wineskins and, and this moldy bread that was fresh baked when we left. And here again, as unlikely and unreasonable as it may seem, here again, Israel forgot to check with the Lord. Now, I do not believe that God wants us to be cynical, but there's a vast difference between being a cynic or a skeptic about everybody and between being wise and practicing God-given wisdom. There's a great deal of difference there. There has never been a more loving man than Jesus Christ. And yet we saw in chapter 2 of John Sunday night that many believed on the miracles of Jesus, but he did not believe on them and he did not entrust himself into their hands. You would not say that Jesus was cynical or skeptical, and yet there was in Jesus an awareness of what the world is and what the world is determined to do. And there was a refusal on his part to be destroyed by the flattery and the falsehood of the world. Jesus Christ was no cynic, but Jesus said, Woe be unto you when all men speak well of you. We need to cultivate an awareness that there are two things that ought to be real life danger signals that the devil's after us. Number one is outright opposition. When you as a Christian or a body of Christians collectively like a church are without opposition from the world, then we're not doing anything. But when God so fortifies us and the naked arm of God is bared and the power of God brings victory to God's people... And the obvious opposition melts. The devil will raise lying tongues from the world to praise the church. 
Now, that doesn't seem consistent, but it's true. Too much acceptance and too much rejection, both, though they are opposites, are signs that the devil is disturbed about what God is doing through his people. It didn't rhyme or alliterate for those of you who are educated, and that's why I didn't say it a different way. But it wasn't really God who was fooled. It wasn't really God who was fooled at all. But the people of God were taken in by the flattery and the falsehood of the world. And then notice verse 16 to the end of chapter 9, and this could have been broken down several ways, and there's a great deal of material here, but we'll try to cover just some high spots of it. Here is the fearing of God, fearing God. Now, after three days, and I think the detail is significant, for there is no nation on the earth, and folks, there wasn't any nation on the earth in the ancient world besides Israel that would have concluded a major diplomatic agreement that would bind them to a course of action without investigating it. But Israel did. And after three days, they found out that they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Jephira and Beeroth and Kirath-Jerim. And the children of Israel smote them not because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation murmured against the princes. But all the princes said unto the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the name of the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore... We may not touch them. I want to hold it right there and point out that though a word given is to be a bond, and though it is to be trusted and upheld, never is there a time when the people of God, individually or collectively, realizing a mistake should not confess the sin, forsake the sin, and obey the Lord. Now you see, they misunderstood God. They had not truly sworn by the name of Jehovah. For to the Hebrews, whose language contains only 10,000 different words every word of which you may lay your hands on, no abstractions. When the Hebrews spoke of the name of the Lord, when they swore by His name, they were swearing by His character and by His word and by His nature and according to His will. And they had not sworn by the name of Jehovah and yet, they perpetuated what they knew to be wrong and sinful because they were not willing 
to confess it, to forsake it, and to obey the Lord. It is strange to note that in verse 1 we are told that all the nations in Canaan feared the Lord, but here Israel didn't fear him enough to undo the wrong thing that they had done. As we proceed through the chapter and on into chapter 10, you will notice in Joshua what happens when a human solution is applied to a human mistake. They said to themselves, we will lose face if we break our word. And after all, generous paraphrase, but I believe it's true to the spirit of the text, after all, some may have reasoned, why should we slay all of these healthy men and women who can become slaves to serve us? And so it seemed, and notice I say it seemed, that they might get a bonus out of their sin. Has it ever seemed to you, I can think of a couple of times in my life, when you have done something wrong that something good seemed to come out of it, that you said to yourself, my, oh my, God can bring good things from our sin. No, that's a misuse of Romans 8.28, which says all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For the law of the harvest operates... Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. They thought they had found a solution. They had fallen into a pit of sin and would come out the better for having sinned. So they said, we will make them slaves. We will make them hewers of wood and carriers of water for the house of God. They were going to put the captured infidels in the Lord's service. Oh, it's hard to believe they thought they could do that. And so they did what they said. But now folks, there's no loopholes. There's no loopholes in the law of the harvest. And I can't resist this, and you're going to get off light because I'm not going to do a very good job of it, but I'm going to spill over into chapter 10. Here's what happened. They forgot that they didn't all just get a bunch of slaves that they could do with as they pleased. If they were going to keep their word, their word pledged them to defend those slaves against their enemies. And all of the other Canaanites who had gathered together against God's people now turned their wrath on the traitors. And Israel became involved in a bloody War in order to save their own enemies. They made an evil alliance. They refused to reject it, get forgiveness, and do what God told them to do. And they wound up spilling the blood of God's army to preserve the enemy of God. 
And no matter how it looks, when we start out to apply a human solution to the results of our evil alliances, no good can come from it. God has one method for us to deal with our evil, with our sin, however we say it, whatever form it takes. And that is when we understand that even as God's people, even as a Christian, even with a good intention, even with a noble desire, when we have gone the way that God did not will, there is one thing to do. We must confess it is sin. We must ask His forgiveness. And we must do whatever is necessary in His sight to make it right. But whenever, whenever we apply a human solution to the results of a human sin, we will, having sown to the wind of our mistakes, reap from the whirlwind. There's just a footnote that I would add. You will notice, and perhaps it is written with sadness, the comment that is made in, ver- in chapter 10, that the inhabitants of Gibeon remained throughout their history among the people of Israel. Israel had left Egypt with some hangers-on called a mixed multitude. They were obviously impressed by the power of God he demonstrated through Moses and through the signs and wonders that God did on Egypt and the judgment he brought on Egypt. But somehow we must believe that they were not true believers for throughout the journey across the wilderness and in the wilderness wanderings, the mixed multitude was the source of unrest and the the source of discord and disharmony among the congregation of Israel. And now, as though they had not done enough in bringing the mixed multitude with them, they had pledged themselves indefinitely to preserve the enemy of God. And may we, as Christians and as a body... Examine very carefully every alliance that is proposed to us, every friendship that the world offers, everything that we might seem to derive from doing something that looks very attractive to determine before so that we will not have to regret afterwards that we are not pledging ourselves to a loyalty to the enemy of God. What would you say in reply or question, discussion, concerning Joshua 9 and to a lesser extent Joshua 10? Or anything else in the book? Or anything else that lets me know you're there? Well, how nice. 
Oh, God bless you. Yes.